According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we are in Proverbs 16, approaching the end of the chapter. Proverbs 16, and uh, we're still wrapping up uh, verses 20 through 24, and then we'll get into uh, 25, which stands by itself, 26 stands by itself. Most of the rest of these verses stand by themselves down to the end of the chapter, with the exception of 27 through 30. Uh, there you've got a uh, a group of, of real jerks. You've got... Um, or villains, I think I called them villains. Well, when we get to this point in the study, calling these guys villains, because you'll notice in verse 27, there's the worthless man, a man of uh, Belial. And then in verse 28, there's the perverse man, the man of uh, perversion. And then uh, in verse 29, the man of violence. And you think, wow, this crowd is uh, terrible. And then the worst of all is uh, the eye winker in verse 30. He who winks his eyes and compresses his lips brings evil to pass. And I think he's the biggest belial and pervert and violent man of all is uh, the eye winker that uh, we'll look at there in verse 30. So really we've got those, that collection of four verses to deal with. Um, and then 31, 32, 33, those are all individual verses as well as far as the poetic structure goes and uh, we'll handle it on that basis. But for this morning though we've got to wrap up the last details out of 20 through 24 and then uh, talk about the upright way in, uh, in verse 25. So that's where we are and where we're headed. Before we get started though let's ask our Father for His blessings as, as we humble ourselves before Him. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth and the blessings that we have to assemble together. They're grace blessings, Father. It's all grace that allows us to grow in the truth. I thank you for the grace that gave us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that uh, he indwells us, he teaches us, and, uh, and we need that, Father. Apart from your grace, we, don't, uh, we couldn't understand a thing we're looking at today. So open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so this is the sixth point in the outline, if I have it right. There it is. The faith rests life, focused on the Word of God. And really that's what it comes down to here. He who gives attention to the Word, that's the faith rests life. You are living in the Word of God. You are um, having success in the Word of God, as, as we see here. He who gives attention to the Word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. And this is the faith rest life. It's day by day just trusting in the Lord and learning as He teaches you. And uh, the aspects there, alright? The wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. We have persuasiveness both in verse 21 and 23. As verse 23 says, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And this is uh, what we were dealing with a week ago, talking about how persuasiveness should not be selfish manipulation of others. We're not equipped, we're not trying to persuade people for our own gain, for our own benefit. It's, that's what Satan does. Satan is, uh, is very persuasive in his manipulations, in his deceit, but all of it is, uh, is for his own advancement, for his own aggrandizement, and we want no part of that. It's actually a gracious motivation to learn. 
And uh, the most powerful persuasion you'll ever offer to any other person is to reflect what you yourself are learning. That's very persuasive. And to to just simply testify for anyone that wants to know that uh, that you're a disciple, you're learning the Word of God, and here's the the, the things you're you're learning, and and all of that uh, all of that uh, zeal and all of that that thrill and that excitement in the Word of God. Like uh, this little girl yesterday, I had a video about this little girl who was given her first Bible ever, and she uh, she looked like four or five years old maybe, and her grandmother was giving her her first Bible ever and she just squealed with delight and then she started crying and was just just thrilled that she has her own Bible because apparently she was in this thing where she had to share a Bible or give it back at the end of the day and she couldn't take it home with her. And so uh, when her grandmother was giving her her very own Bible that she could keep and didn't have to turn in, and she, that was just the biggest thrill in the world, you know. So you watch this video and you just, it's fun, you know, to watch that kind of thing. And then you uh, then you go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, why aren't more believers like that? <laughs> why aren't more brothers and sisters just so thrilled with their Bibles that... Uh, that uh, they they never miss a class and they're always under teaching when the doors are open and and they're just uh just thrilled before the Lord to learn the things that are written in it. Well that's what becomes persuasive. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. So you're living in the word of God and your heart is dedicated to learning the word of God and that's what teaches your mouth. It's not it's not a technique. It's not a it's not a system of oratory. It's not methods of public speaking whereby you can you know, talk people into things. And that's not, we don't do that in our seminary. We're not training our men to, to be manipulative in, in, in how, you know, that's not persuasion. That's not biblical persuasion. But uh, if, you, uh, if you love the Lord and you love His Word, that comes out. That's obvious in, uh, in a genuine ministry. And uh, so we can appreciate that for what it is. And so that adds persuasiveness to, uh, to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And so uh, the words you give to somebody else, they're life. They are life for both evangelism and edification. And this is what really ties this uh, together, these, this section, verse 22 and verse 24, communicated blessings, communicated blessings. And that goes back really to the main point. Uh, the faith rest life, again I'll put that back up there for you. The faith rest life focused on the Word of God is a persuasive life of communicated blessings. It's been communicated to you and you are now communicating it to others. That's the whole point as we, uh, as we see it here. It's been communicated to you, now you are communicating it to others. Alright, you say well I don't want to be a communicator. Well, too bad. <laughs> we are all called to be communicators in this regard. We are all uh, uh, instruments in God's hands. Through us, He's going to reach others. And that's the, uh, the design here. Includes fountain of life provisions for evangelism and edification. So uh, verse 22, understanding is a fountain of life to the one who has it. And uh, are you drinking from your own fountain or is it designed to be shared with others? Of course, it's the fellowship of the Word of God that goes to others. And uh, this is what we're called to do. Verse 24, uh, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And again, I would hope that we recognize that the sweetness comes from the nature of the Word itself. The Word is intrinsically sweet. The Word is intrinsically pure. The Word is intrinsically powerful. That it's not up to us to try to make it sweet. 
We're not trying to flavor the Word in a way from our own creativity, from our own imagination. We're not trying to flavor the Word of God so that it becomes more palatable to the ear of the one that hears it. We're we're teaching the truth for what it says. And the Word itself has its own intrinsic might and power and sweetness and taste and and so forth. And man, they don't want to hear it. That's probably the word they need to hear when it comes down to a a rebuke or a reproof in, uh, in those ways. And so um, don't feel pressured about, well, um, I'm just, I'm, I don't know what to say, or I don't know how to say it, or I don't know, I don't, I don't feel like, like I can say, wait a minute, you're just doing the, the whole Moses excuse making at that point, and, and God didn't put up with it with Moses, and he's not going to put up with it with you either. Uh, you're the servant that he's put at this time, at this place, in this circumstance, and so he expects you to be faithful. And, uh, and speak the truth that you've already received. You know, just share what you learned this morning. Share what you learned last week. Share what you've learned recently in, uh, from the Word of God. And because that's where the sweetness comes. It's already sweet. You don't have to make it sweet. All right. And so uh, we get to be the channel then as these things come forth. And backing up all the way to chapter 10. This is something that we've seen in chapter 10, 13, 14. Here we are in 16. It's going to come back again in 18. It comes back over and over again in this uh, uh, personal and public wisdom portion of the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. We saw the contrast on that. But the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Think about it. You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> you know, when Peter told the Lord, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. That's now true for us, for all of us. We are his witnesses. We are his, his uh, evangelists in this lost and dying world. So the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That's true for, edific- for evangelism in giving the, the gospel to an unbeliever, but it's also true for uh, edification. That's also true when we open our mouth and that fountain pours forth and we have the words of life as we were looking at on Sunday, the living sacrifice that we have. We're walking in the newness of life. We have a priesthood of life, not a priesthood of death. And so that fountain of life is useful not only for, edif- for evangelism but also for edification when we supply those living words and a living sacrifice to, uh, to one another in, uh, in this way. Proverbs 13 and verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. So that clearly is edification. That's teaching. That's building up. That's not just evangelism and getting somebody saved, but that's um, to turn him aside, to turn aside from the snares of death. Obviously sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And that's positional but also experiential. Related to what we do when we go carnal. What happens when a brother goes carnal? Well, he's in operational death. He's walking in the paths of death again, and he shouldn't be. And so what's going to turn him from that? What's the teaching that provides for that? Called the teaching of life, the fountain of life here. And so uh, we see uh, the value in evangelism. We see the value in edification. And uh, to put that word of God there, in their hearing. And, uh, and, and then uh, just let the word do the work. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. Again, the pressure's off. Don't feel like you're a failure if you've given the Word of God and they still continue in their sin. 
All right, because that's you've given the word of God, you've delivered your soul, you've washed your hands, and now it's on them, and the Holy Spirit convicts, and you let the word do its work. And maybe the timetable is not as fast as we want it to be, but God knows what He's doing. And when that repentance happens, that repentance we want it to happen. Um, you know, is there a reason why it's better to happen later rather than sooner? Well, God knows. See, God knows, and we may not like it. And we might think, well, think of the damage they're doing in the meantime because, you know, because they're delaying the repentance or it's taking too long. Well, what if it's a circumstance whereby if they repent too soon, then they begin a roller coaster cycle of up and down and in and out and back and forth, and they never, for the rest of their life, they never develop any kind of a stability? Would it not be a better plan if a deferred repentance, maybe? leads to a permanent, lifelong walking in the light. you know. And God knows that. God knows what's going to bring that about for the glory of His Son. And all we can do is walk by faith and trust that, uh, that He knows what He's doing in these, in these things. Over to chapter 14 and verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. And even this kind of, this deals with the attitude behind the things that we say. The attitude that, that drives uh, what we say. And, and in fact, I think it adds persuasiveness to the things that we say. Whereby we, we not only do we communicate truth, but we communicate the attitude of fear, the attitude of reverence before the Lord. Whereby that person, even if they don't, even if they don't understand everything of what we're saying, I mean, let's face it, when you're, when you're teaching doctrine to a, a weaker brother or someone in carnality, someone that's trying to get out of it, um, they're not going to be equipped to grasp all of the details or all of the information. It's going to take time. But one thing they can walk away with though, one thing that's going to leave that powerful impression is that you have such a reverence before the Lord and such a respect for the Word of God and such a humility for the, the power of Scripture in your life. That, that's a big takeaway. And, uh, and they're going to, that's going to haunt them. That's going to, that's going to, they're going to be reflecting upon that in terms of their own attitude of fear or lack their own reverence for the Word of God, their own um, attitude to the Bible itself, see. And, and uh, sometimes I think it's useful too to, when I get out of these circles, when I'm away from uh, you know, my own flock and I'm, I'm talking to other Christians and, uh, with other traditions and cultures, you know, backgrounds, it, it's, it's interesting because very quickly we find out what their view is of the Scriptures. And, and in a lot of cases, they've got a pretty low view of, of, of the Scriptures. And they would do much better if they had a higher view of the Scriptures. In other words, take it seriously, that God wrote it, that it's still alive and powerful, it's still applicable today. Sadly, though, they got this idea that it's just a primitive thing and it's old-fashioned and it's outdated. And, you know, we're in the modern world now, and so we, we uh, have the, the right to impose our own standards on the Word of God. And we just say, well, you know, that was okay for back then, but come on, we're now in the world of, and, and so they want to put their feminist views on top of the Bible, they want to put their sexual views on top of the Bible, they want to put their morality on top of the Bible, and all these things, and, uh, you know. <laughs> so you start talking to them, and then when, uh, when it becomes so clear that you have a fear of the Lord, that you have a reverence for His Word, that you are holding His Word to a higher esteem than they do, then that's something they're going to walk away with and, and uh, perhaps give that some thought in the coming weeks and months. I mean, that's, the, that's the, what it comes down to. And really, 
until they get humble before the Word of God themselves, what else is going to be accomplished uh, in, in, uh, in that regard? So the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. And, uh, and, and sometimes that's the best battle to fight right there. If you're going to make a disciple, uh, to make a disciple communicate the reverence you have for the Word of God. That uh, He's exalted it according to His own name. And uh, if, if He, God Himself, has a high regard for His Word, if I've got a different attitude, then I need the attitude adjustment because I've got to have the attitude He has related to His Word. And, uh, and there you have it. Psalm, uh, not Psalm, Proverbs 18.4. I've had, I've had discussions <laughs> uh, and it just makes me tremble. I'm like, wow. And, and I just have to tell him that. I said, I, I, you know, you're shocking me with how low you hold the, the, the Word of God in your opinion. I mean, really. I, my faith is not comfortable holding the Word of God with that low regard. That's, uh, I'm, you know, I just have to let it go at that and say, you know, that we have no basis for further discussion, really. If, uh, if, if you're going to treat the Word of God like that, what, what are we doing? All right. Proverbs 18.4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. So we'll deal with that when we get to this chapter. But it's deep. It's, it's infinitely deep. And the Holy Spirit will take you into the depths of, of, uh, of the Word of God when you need to be in those depths. And, uh, and then the, the benefit to be able to communicate it to others who uh, maybe they're not ready for those depths. And yet that's how the Spirit is, uh, is uh, ministering through you. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. All right. John 4.14, not only in Proverbs, but in the New Testament. Jesus employed the imagery here in His message for both evangelism and edification, by the way. John 4.14, this is with the woman at the well. And he uses the opportunity, if you're standing at a well and talking about water, then you know what a great venue to, to, uh, to discuss this. So, um, and I mean, it's just, what an opening line, right? Here comes this woman and, she, and he says, give me a drink. <laughs> you know, what an opening line. And uh, you think, wow. And so she's shocked. How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And, you know, we don't talk to each other. What do you expect me to do here? And Jesus answered and said to her, see this is the thing, you ask a question you know she's not going to respond to and so then you know, when she gets over her shock now you've got a, an opportunity to you know, sit down and talk and tell her something else and get to know her or whatever else. Okay? This is genius in, uh, in that way. <laughs> All right. Oh my goodness, I just remembered a story from my army days. We, all right. No, no, no charge for this. Um, we were at a place, we were living in Germany, we were at a place, was a, there was music and dancing and, and whatever, and there were some girls there. And, uh, and one of my buddies went over, in fact a sergeant I used to work for, and there was a girl sitting there and she had a she, broken leg. She had a cast on her foot. And uh, so obviously she wasn't dancing and she was just kind of sitting there kind of up by herself. Anyway, he walked up to her and he asked her to dance. <laughs> you know? And uh, you think, well, how ridiculous is that? She's got a cast on her leg. She broke her leg skiing or whatever. 
he walked up to her and he asked her to dance. You know, and it was almost as unthinkable as Jesus asking this woman for a drink of water. And uh, she looks at him incredulously and says, are you an idiot? I've got a cast on my leg. I can't dance. And so he said, oh, okay, I see that. Well, then let me just sit down and talk to you then. And that was his opening to get to know her better. Anyway, yeah, man, I hadn't thought of that in a long, long time. The, um, so Jesus, back to Scripture now, um, he said, if you knew the gift, this is the thing, he asked her for water, but really he's got the water to provide, the living water, and, and she needs it. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. See? Now, is she saved? Or is she going to get saved in this chapter? See, usually this is taken as, as evangelistic. See? But once we start to admit the fact that the living water is, is useful for evangelism and edification, that's, uh, I think it causes us to reevaluate here because she's got a perspective on doctrine. She's got a perspective on the difference between Jewish doctrine and Samaritan doctrine. She's been waiting to get her questions asked. She finally finds out this is a prophet. Anyway, this is, uh, I, I keep pondering this. All right. But if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. <coughs> and, uh, and I think people look at that verse and say, well, she can't be saved because she doesn't know the gift of God. Well, he, there was two parts to that question. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, say, both are included in the in the second class condition, the fact that she doesn't know. So she may know the gift of God, she just doesn't know that this is the Christ. Anyway, we should be willing to admit the fact that she's regenerate before this uh, before this chapter starts. Anyway, sir, you have no, nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank it himself and Anyway, so Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so this is the imagery of this water, that it flows, that it springs up, that it's a source, but it's a source that's intended to go somewhere and do something. It's not just sitting there getting stagnant, but it springs up. And so just like we're talking about in Proverbs, it's, it flows. It's supposed to go somewhere. We communicate and we should be blessing others with this living water. And she doesn't grasp the, the metaphor there, so she says, sir, give me this water and I will not be thirsty or come here all the way to drink. And uh, she's a little sarcastic with him actually in this, in this, uh, in this verse. Until he exposes her and then, and then she's just humble as anything. She wants to know the truth. I perceive that you're a prophet. And she wants to get her, uh, her questions answered. And by the way, when he finally resolves this, down in verse 26, she says Messiah is coming and uh, the one that, who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And he says, I am. He, he answers that second part of if you knew the gift of life and if you knew the one speaking to you. I think all she needed to recognize was that he was the coming Messiah. She'd already, she knew Messiah was coming. She had her faith in the coming Messiah. That's Old Testament salvation. Now she just has to identify that this is him. This is the one that she's believed in all this time. See? All right. So that's the, uh, the language there. When we go to John chapter 7, 
John chapter 7. And uh, this is the feast. And at first he wasn't going to go up. The Feast of Booths was near. And this is in the fall. This is just six months out from the cross, right? And this is, he, he imagined, would go year after year after year. The, the crowds expected him to be there. He was always there. But this is a year where, for different reasons, he's reluctant to go. And uh, we can only imagine the temptations he was under and the, and the concerns that he had and the, the uh, testing he was dealing with related to uh, related to different things. As, uh, as the cross approached, and part of his humanity didn't want to go to the cross. And, uh, and here's a feast that celebrates the millennial kingdom, that celebrates glory. And uh, when his brothers are urging him to go up, and he's not so quick to get there. And uh, they're urging him to go and get more fame. And he's, uh, <laughs> I guess, the last thing he wanted. And um, and I think you see that in verses 6, 7, and 8. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but hates me, because I testify of it that his deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. And uh, this is the feast where for a thousand years, kings are going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to worship him in the millennial kingdom. Anyway, so his brothers go up and then he himself goes up later in secret. And there's all this expectation on the part of the crowds and they're all wondering why he hasn't showed up and and all these things there. Anyway, he finally does in the middle of the feast, he will finally reveal himself and start to teach. Um, And we get to that. All right, further down in the chapter, down to verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Again, it's the language from Proverbs. It's the language of water. And it is, it's not just sitting there. It's flowing. It's going somewhere. It's designed to do something. And so yes, you get saved. You're blessed. But then you become the channel for others. You become the source or the channel, not the source, because it's not your gospel. But through you, that water flows and then others can drink related to your evangelism and edification ministry. So these are the communicated blessings. And we all should be communicators. Whatever our giftedness is, whatever our calling is, each one of us is a light in the dark world. Each one of us has the the privilege of being able to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's uh, that's the thrill that we should have if uh, if we're still thrilled about it. If we're still if we haven't lost the thrill, if we haven't been saved so long that we uh, grow, have grown complacent in, in what a thrill it is to be saved, all right, and to be able to communicate that to others is uh, is indeed a privilege. All right, so back to Proverbs then, Proverbs sixteen, and now verse twenty five. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Word for word, this is a total repeat from Proverbs twelve fifteen. All right, and so we taught it back in Proverbs twelve. Why bother teaching it again? Uh, just kidding. Uh, we're going to teach it again because God, in His wisdom, gives it again and again and again. 
And uh, the nature of, of Proverbs is such that you review and you reinforce and you glean new things. But there is an upright ray. Let me trans- retranslate this, I think, in a more literal sense. There is an upright way before the face of a man. I'm going to try to emphasize maybe things that we didn't do back in chapter 12 or back in chapter 14 or different places where this happens, okay? Um, there is an upright way before the face of a man. And so in the first part of the verse we're talking about which seems right or it's in the, fra- it's in the face of a man, it's in front of him. And so as it sits in front of you, seems all right, seems upright, it's in front of you, okay, that's what I'm going to do. But then afterwards, the second part of the verse talks about its end. When the, so there's a big difference between the, when the road is in front of you and when the road's behind you, right? And that's the picture of this verse. And so the road's in front of you, and it seems right. It appears upright. Then, so you take it. Now, is it, is it an upright way? Well, it turns out it wasn't. Because after you've taken it, you realize, wow, that led me to all kinds of trouble. The end, when it's behind you, is a plural, not just the way of death. Way is singular. The Hebrew is plural. Ways of death. Ways of death. There was a plurality of problems on that road. And, uh, and, and one, it's curious how when you're not acknowledging the Lord, you're just assuming that this is, this is a good thing, or it might even also be a, a recognition that uh, it's, uh, it's how it appears righteous in the eyes of others. That's why you did it. You, you did something for the show. You did something for the appearance so that somebody else would think that you're a righteous person. And, and all that's just an artificial show related to that. All right. Anyway, there is an upright way. There's no question that in the first part of this verse, it's yashar for upright or straight or righteous and derek for way and, uh, and, and yesh, it's there. There is an upright way before your face, say. And so I think this uh, becomes our um, opportunity then to stop, to acknowledge God, to pray through it, to seek His wisdom, and don't just simply assume, right? Don't just simply assume, okay, we do the same thing in, in terms of an open door. There's an open door and you go, wow, that must be the will of God for me to well, stop, slow down. Because God's not the only one that opens doors, is He? The adversary will open some doors too and make them look really, really good. And He'll get you all distracted with things that are not the will of God. Because you didn't stop to ask the Father. He says, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your steps. See, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't just assume that, oh, this looks right, that you're going to do it. David wanted to build a temple. And Nathan said, go ahead, great idea, the Lord is with you. Don't just assume. Nathan never said, well, David, let's stop and pray about it, right? Wouldn't that have been something? To say, okay, Let's pray about it. Let's, let's ask the Lord if this is His will. Instead, Nathan just assumed and David just assumed and alright, great idea. Let's announce a new building program. That gets people excited. And, and well, then the Lord had to come to Nathan in a dream that night and say, whoa, put the brakes on there, pal. That's, that's not for David to do. His son's going to do that. And so David, Nathan has to go the next morning and say, you know, forget what I told you last night. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, I had a dream and, and we should have prayed about it last night. That's the real key. Same thing, if there's a righteous way in front of you, 
Um, there's a way that seems right to a man. If, if it just, if, if it, the door opens up and you go, wow, that's got to be the will of God. Who does it? Have you asked? Have you gone in prayer? Have you searched it out? All right. Because, uh, you know, you can get on that path and then look behind you and see the, all the destruction that came because you never prayed it through and you never considered the will of God. All right. The afterwards are the ways, plural. Afterwards are the ways, plural, of death. And all the different deaths, plural, that uh, you encountered while staying on that road. And there too, let's go back to 14.12 and see that application. The um, um, in, in verse tw- in fourteen twelve though the the verse comes as a part of a tandem with verse eleven and verse twelve that's that's the difference between chapter fourteen and chapter sixteen so in verse eleven of, of chapter fourteen the house of the wicked will be destroyed but the tent of the upright will flourish and there's an emphasis in this pair of verses that's talking about the present but looking forward to the outcome so the house of the wicked will be destroyed the tent of the of the upright will flourish. You have a believer with divine viewpoint that's looking forward to the eternal outcomes of of where we are and what we're doing. And with that as the context then comes the admonishment that there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so in chapter 14 when we taught it, we were discussing the the priority of having an eternal view, the the principle of, of not just you know, of, of looking forward and considering what are the future ramifications of present decision making. And, uh, and that becomes very edifying in its own right. Here in chapter 16, when the principle gets repeated, it's not in a two verse tandem and it doesn't, uh, does not include that forward looking verse to lead into it. It just sits by itself here in 1625. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the ways of death. So really that's the, that's the consequence there. The difference between what's in front of you and what's behind you. And, uh, that's why we want to um, we want to function on that way. All right. Then the second part of point seven: religious self righteousness is a terrible life of destruction. The worst thing about it is because it seems good, because it seems good, and in front of the face, on its face, at face value, we would say, on its face, it's a good walk. And so. Another motivation to, uh, to take that road is that uh, other people are going to think highly of you. Other people are going to look at you and, and be jealous, or they're going to look at you and be impressed. And so you can actually take that road deliberately just for the sake of, of what other people will think when they see you on that road. And we would call that religious self-righteousness religious self-righteousness. And it is a terrible life of destruction. And so if that's the, the impact that comes out of this verse, now we've got all kinds of scriptures that can address that. There are other uh, verses from the Word of God that will help to illustrate why uh, this is such a destructive thing, including Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 28. Matthew 7, the Lord addressed this in, uh, in His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. John 16, 2 and Acts 26, 9 with reference to uh, religious self-righteous people who think they're serving God and they are terribly destructive to themselves and others in, uh, in the damage that gets done through that uh, religious self-righteousness. Ultimately, is that not the fall of Satan? The fall of Satan in his five-eye wills was religious self-righteousness and it gets reflected in all satanic evil ever since. 
And so uh, some of these studies, I think, are, are useful as well. Isaiah 5, we can see what this is about. A way that seems right, and yet the opposite. How can something be such a polar opposite? Could, can, can a believer be so misoriented to truth that they're actually living the polar opposite of what God would have for them to live? Of course. That's the whole Laodicea mentality. When you think you're rich and need nothing, and he says you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You are living the, you are living the polar opposite of what God would have you to live and don't even know it. You think everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And here you are calling good evil and evil good. And, uh, and this is a message of woe. So, um, and they don't even realize. I guess we could even back up if we wanted to to verses 18 and 19, but let's just leave it here in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And when they're making those substitutions, they're doing it for a reason. Because they want to be thought of as righteous. But they want to be doing the fun stuff, right? They want to be thought of as good. They want, and so they just convince everybody that this is good. Even though the Bible calls it sin. The Bible calls it an abomination. But they can talk everybody else into saying, no, 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 this is good and right and pure. and This is, this is the way God made me and this is a great thing. And celebrate with me. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. See, the whole thing that allows you to do this is you think you know better than God. You think that, uh, that your standard is better than God's standard and that the Word of God is outdated and needs to be updated and let's just, let's just uh, substitute our viewpoint. Remember, the world's wisdom is foolishness before God and God's wisdom is foolishness before the world. So if you're worldly minded, of course you're going to be on this path. And yet, <laughs> there is still, at the core of your being, in your heart, you image God. You're in the image of God. And there's a drive to um, there's a drive to, to to be thought of as righteous, to be thought of as good, to be thought of as as uh, not bad. All right, and so it's described there. These are part of there's multiple woes in this whole paragraph here. Just limit ourselves to those two here this morning from verse twenty and verse twenty one. All right, over to chapter twenty eight, Isaiah twenty eight. In verse 15. Verse 14 says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. The accountability gets even more severe if you're in a position of leadership. If you're a husband, a father, a pastor, uh, a king. You know, if you're, uh, In this case it's the, the rulers of the people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol we have made a pact. Now not everyone's as blatant as that. (laughs) But when you're substituting good for evil and evil for good, when you're living in defiance of the Word of God, what else are you doing? Fundamentally you've, you've made a bargain with the devil, have you not? You're actually working in this world and living in this world and serving the God of this world, the God of this age. And uh, when you come right out and admit it, that's, uh, that's flagrant, I tell you. 
You have said we have made a covenant with death. With Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made our falsehood our refuge. We have concealed ourselves with deception. When you are that lost in a darkness, calling good evil and evil good, when you are that lost in the lie, you're invested in it. And so you wrap yourself up in it. And it has to, it becomes now your truth, your new truth. Even though objectively, of course, it's a lie and God tells you it's a lie. But as it says here, we have made falsehood our refuge. We have concealed ourselves with deception. So you own it. You wrap yourself up in it. And this is now your life moving forward. And uh, that, is a, that is a slavery right there, I tell you. And so that's then the introduction to the cornerstone promise that God says here. That uh, the, the, the costly cornerstone gets introduced in verse 16. And that takes you to some beautiful principles as well. But we'll let that go for this morning as well. All right. Religious self-righteousness is a terrible life of destruction. And you just start embracing the lie and you clothe yourself with the lie. It's a terrible way to live. All right. What does our Lord say about it? Matthew 7. Twenty-one through twenty-three. Of course, you will know them by their fruits. And a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And it's curious how many bad trees try to bear what they call good fruit. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now the sad verse is the next one, but just stop right there. In verse 22, do you see how religiously self-righteous these people are? These people are convinced that they're good people. They have convinced themselves that they're good people. And they've been very busy doing all the stuff they've been doing, spending their lives doing all this stuff. They've prophesied, they've cast out demons, they perform miracles. And notice how sensational they are about this. It makes me wonder, in terms of today, in terms of Pentecostal churches today, charismatic believers today, and different things, it's just sad that they view their spectacular Christianity as, as uh, what it is. And I wonder, do they know the Lord? Do they know His Word? Do they understand how... Uh, they're mixed up in things they shouldn't be mixed up in. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. They're not, they don't have a relationship with Him. They don't know Him. They're not saved. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And they would call it righteousness. He calls it lawlessness. That's the difference. That's what makes the guys the essence of self-righteous, uh, religious self-righteousness. And, and um, you know, it's just like a way that seems right to a man, but what's the end of it? They think they're on the right road. You know, the hardest people to ever give the gospel to are people who think they're already saved. Because, hey, I'm Catholic, I'm good. I'm going to go to, I'm, I'm in the right, or, hey, yeah, I've, I've experienced the second blessing. I can speak in tongues. Wow, that's scary. Because let me tell you, it's not the Holy Spirit empowering that. You're, you're, you're toying with things that, that ought not be toyed with. There's an empowerment there. 
And it's not the Holy Spirit. Tongues ended in 70 AD. All right. And it stayed ended for almost 2,000 years, not until the uh, Azusa Street revivals and some of the other in the modern day charismatic movement did uh, to the demons. I think that the hedge got lowered to the point that the demons were now free to start uh, empowering the the glossolalia the way that they do. All right. And yet they spend their lives thinking, Lord, Lord. You know the sad thing about it? A lot of times we don't think about it, but what is that day? Many will say to me on that day. What's the setting for verse 22? If they're unbelievers standing before their judge, that's the great white throne judgment, is it not? That's not the great, that's not the judgment seat of Christ for believers. I mean, to me, it's undeniable. Verse 22 is the great white throne judgment. These are unbelievers standing before the judge of the universe, pleading their case, and then being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Revelation chapter 20 tells us when, and we know when the when the great white throne judgment is convened, it's convened at the end of the millennium. It's convened. After the Gog Magog rebellion is convened after the present heavens and earth are destroyed by fire. Only then is death and Hades emptied out. The point being, these people have already been in hell for whatever length of time. They've already been there. Right? An unbeliever who dies today doesn't get to stand before his judge and argue his case the next day. He's he's in hell when he dies. And he doesn't come out of hell until the great white throne to stand before Jesus Christ. So everybody that's saying, Lord, Lord, they've already been in hell for whatever length of time they've been there. Cain's been there for, you know, 6,000 years now. Seven, you know, and, and every unbeliever since Cain. So some of these unbelievers have been there for thousands of years. All right. And yet, even after the experience of hell, there is a drive for religious self-righteousness. I'm a good person. I was serving you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. John 16, 2. This is such a life of destruction. And people can confuse their zeal and their religiosity for anything of value. Jesus says uh, in verse 1, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. You talk about extremes of religious uh, self-righteousness. They can carry it to the point of murder and still be convinced they're serving God. They're doing right. You know, deuce volt, God wills it. You know, and then we can commit murder in the name of Jesus Christ. How evil is that? And uh, it's a terrible life of destruction. There is a way that seems right to a man, including expelling you from the synagogue and murdering you and all this religious stuff. There is a way that seems right to him. And it seems, hey, I'm on the upright path. I'm the righteous one. Paul went to Damascus to arrest them, to put them in prison, to put them to death, and felt that he was completely righteous. He was the most righteous Pharisee he knew. 
He was out righteousing all the other Pharisees because none of them were walking to Damascus to do all this. He was going the extra mile and all, you know, all the stuff. It's terrible. Acts 26. He's standing before Agrippa, he's giving his defense, starting in verse 4. And he's actually happy, thrilled that he's got Agrippa as a judge. He says in verse 2, in regard to all the things which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, in that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. So he was born in Tarsus and then in his youth moved to Jerusalem and then was in the school of Gamaliel after that. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to the fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you as if God does raise the dead? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people have always, well, except for the Sadducees, the Pharisees held to the, uh, to the resurrection. So preaching a resurrected Christ should not be a shock. But then notice, verse 9, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Here is religious self-righteousness. Here is a way that seems right to a man. Saul of Tarsus, it seemed right to him that he had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he thought he was on the righteous path. The end thereof is death. It's a terrible life of destruction. So he says, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in, pri- in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, to me, that's the plain language of verse 10. Other people dispute it, but um, to me, I cast my vote against them. He was a voting member. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And every last bit of that he did, thinking he was righteous. Applying, the, living out the illustration of uh, Proverbs 16.25. There is a way that seems right to a man. He was on that path. He was sure of it. On that path. And uh, anything but. All right, so that's uh, that's what that is. All right, back to Proverbs 16, and let's look at verse 26. Getting hungry? This is a good verse to preach right before lunchtime. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. His hunger urges him on. All right, here's a 
proverb that stands by itself. Point eight, while a man may work for another, his hunger works for him. While a man may work for another, his hunger works for him. And so it's, uh, it's a neat play on words, and it's such a truth that uh, hunger is a marvelous motivator. It's a powerful uh, blessing, and it's always been a powerful blessing. We don't want to confuse uh, hunger with the fall. Adam and Eve were hungry before they fell. That's why they ate, and that's why they fell. All right? Hunger. They were designed to be hunger. They were designed to be eating. God designed the, uh, it's not a coincidence, they didn't, they didn't get their digestive tract after they became sinners. Humanity was designed to eat. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. Man became a living soul. And so he had a spiritual appetite and a physical appetite. And uh, the whole purpose is, as far as eating, is to sustain that physical life. And God said, you may eat from any tree of the garden. Ever think about that? Think about what might have happened if he didn't eat? Didn't eat anything? He was sinless. He was perfect. He had no, he had no, uh, you know, could he, did he get hungry? Of course he got hungry. Would he starve? Of course. If he'd never eaten, he would have starved to physical death. So there's a, there's a component here. See, Adam was created sinless and perfect. He was created mortal. It wasn't that uh, mortality is not a consequence of the fall. He had to eat to sustain his physical life. All right. The uh, blessings of work. Uh, we're going to talk about this. I've got six minutes left. Let's. Uh, how far can we get with this? I've also got some sub points. The um, Genesis three. Let's look at Genesis. The blessings of work, even before they fell then became toil and labor after they fell. But the blessing came before the fall. And the need to eat was a part of the original design. So we do look at Genesis 3.19 and we see the, the, the difference. <clears throat> to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Eating sustains physical life. Always has. It's just now it's going to be a toil because now there's going to be a curse upon the earth and so now there's going to be weeds, there's going to be thistles, there's going to be other issues. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. And so there's cultivation and then there's wild plants and it takes work. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Now bread doesn't come out of the dirt, not as bread, but grain grows and then you've got to pound it and ground it and bake it and and it takes work. And so uh, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground because from it you were taken. Now this is origin and this is before the fall by the way. He was a dust creature before he sinned. You were taken from the ground. How would, how would a, a dust creature live forever as a dust creature? See, he has to eat. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
All right. Just want to highlight this. And, and when you glance back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 and you see the, uh, the nature of this and the planting of the garden and uh, man in his own image, verse 29 of chapter 1, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. Well, why does he need those? Because he's going to get hungry. He is a creature that needs food. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Adam needed food before he sinned. Eating is not a consequence of the fall. Eating was always the design. Just like mortality was always the design. We bear the image of the earthly before we bear the image of the heavenly. Mortality followed by immortality. All right. So I just want to be clear on that because some people think he was immortal when he was created. He was sinless when he was created. He was mortal when he was created. All right. And to every beast of the earth, every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Animals have to eat. You don't feed your animal, it's going to die. So animals need to eat. Humans need to eat. This is the design uh, eating. And that's going to be a benefit because uh, hunger then works on our behalf. It's our friend. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a marvelous uh, assistant that reminds you that you've got work to do. And if you don't work, you don't eat. That's the way it works. That's right. That's the way it's supposed to work. Unless a politician comes along and guarantees that your government will pay you even if you're unwilling to work. That is just so unbiblical, anti-biblical, and insane that uh, it boggles the mind that someone would say such a thing. All right. Ecclesiastes. Let me, let me grab this last one here. Ecclesiastes. How often do we turn to it? This is Solomon out of fellowship. All right. With human viewpoint. All right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Get to Song of Solomon. You've gone too far. And uh, yeah, this is full human viewpoint and vanity and, and uh, why life is a waste of time. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not the attitude you and I should be having as believers in the church age with doctrine, with, with the Holy Spirit and everything else. But um, verse 7, all of a man's labor is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Or what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? And goes on, but just verse 7, all of a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. So you work, you make money, uh, you've got a not, he's the richest man in the world, he's got all the money in the world, and you think about it, if you have all the money in the world, what can you not buy? So you eat, great, and then you get hungry again. <laughs> so you eat, great, and then you get hungry again. And is that the whole point? What is the point? And if you don't have the Word of God, then yeah, that can be a pretty uh, nihilistic, uh, pointless way to live. All right, well, we'll pick up on this next week. There's a couple of subpoints here to this, and then we get to the villains in verses 27 through 30. So that's a good.
portion of the chapter as well. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the book of Proverbs and how practical it is, how simple it is. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.